meet me at the edge where the road ends and the trail begins where light passes into shadow and memory transforms to myth where whispers turn to music and magic blooms to life here all things are possible and so the story begins this is the enchanted path Tall grass shivered in the pale light of the cold December moon. Full and luminous, shafts of moonbeams danced across the frost-speckled path as John and old Mr. Mabbit made their way northward through the quiet countryside. Their eyes passed warily about in the icy darkness, hoping that no sound would betray their quest to deliver the cargo in tow. Three large wooden barrels were nested beneath a heap of straw, their contents splashing faintly as a donkey lurched the cart forward across every bump and rut of the narrow road. The year was 1786, and the place that John and Mabbit were crossing was Wiltshire and the rural landscape of southwest England. It was nearing Christmas time, and they were en route with a secret delivery for the Pelican Inn. At this time, the crown had imposed a heavy tax on spirits, which created a rather bustling smuggling operation. Routes were established to transport brandy and gin from remote coves of the south coast to traders and merchants further inland. Transporting spirits was extremely dangerous, as the consequences for poaching were harsh. Excisemen were employed by the crown specifically to arrest anyone who dared to risk the punishment for smuggling, and they were always ready to charge someone caught in the act. These frightening consequences are why John and Mabbit had taken great care to disguise themselves, wearing the clothes of farmers and delivering their best impersonation of the local country folk. Their journey had been quite peaceful and rather uneventful as they approached the town of Devizes and neared their destination. The two men began to relax a little and exhaled a bit. As they led the cart towards a bridge to cross a small pond, the donkey grew startled and came to a full stop. A few moments passed as the donkey nervously shifted from side to side, digging its hooves stubbornly into the frozen earth. The two men tried to persuade the donkey, even drag him forward, but this only furthered the resistance. After a struggle of wills, the donkey let out a roaring screech and broke free of the cart, galloping in terror into the darkness. The cart crashed forward, and all three barrels rolled straight down the slope of the pond. The splash was deafening. Panicked, John and Mabbit hastily grabbed the rakes that had fallen off the cart and began dragging the stiff blades of half-frozen pond grasses over the barrels. They grew desperate as they heard a man call out from the distance. What luck. 
it was an exciseman, and they could hear him shouting the words, Poachers. The exciseman approached, and John, in his best Wiltshire accent, attempted to explain the situation. He told the man that they were no poachers, just mere farmers who had an incident with their donkey. John explained that their cheese had rolled straight off the cart and into the pond, and they were working hard to retrieve it. Bemused, the exciseman stepped back to observe this bizarre scene. The men were so determined, raking a reflection of the moon in the water. <laughs> and just how simple are these folk, he thought, as his laughter bellowed outward. They don't even realize that's the moon, not their cheese. Roaring with laughter, he left the two in their misguided determination and retreated into the night. After a few moments, John and Mabbitt slumped forward with relief. It had worked. Somehow, they had just avoided being caught with the contraband right in front of them. After they were certain that the exciseman was far out of range, they extracted the barrels from the frosty water and rolled them back into the cart heaped by a blanket of straw. The donkey was also retrieved and harnessed back to the cart. This time, they were able to cross the bridge without trouble. They kept quiet about the night's incident, but the exciseman proudly boasted in every local pub what he had seen. Two ridiculous farmers raking the moon's reflection to save their fallen cheese. Little did he know that the joke was on him, and the story has circulated ever since. John and Mabbitt's misadventure has become a local legend and given a nickname to every person born in Wiltshire today, Moonrakers. The story of the Moonrakers first appeared in 1787 in Francis Gross's Provincial Glossary, Many parts of the country claim this story, though the prevailing consensus is that its origins belong to Wiltshire. Edward Slow, a poet who wrote many of his stories in the Wiltshire dialect, immortalized the tale of the Moonrakers in an 1881 publication. The infamous mishap of the Moonrakers and their clever recovery has colored local folk tales ever since. Welcome to the first destination of the Enchanted Path, Wiltshire, England. Located in the southwest countryside, Wiltshire is a gentle rolling landscape of patchwork farm fields, charming villages, and deeply mysterious phenomena. Home to the UNESCO World Heritage Sites of Stonehenge and Avebury, it is one of the oldest inhabited locations in Britain with stone circles, barrows, and earthen monuments originating from the Neolithic period. Crop circles, UFO sightings, ghostly legends, ancient burial sites, thatched roof cottages, haunted pubs, and castle ruins are among the many characteristics that make Wiltshire a truly unique phenomenon of a place. I'm Jesse, your host. And in this episode, I will guide you through some of the highlights of Wiltshire and the lore that shapes its ancient heritage. This is a part of the world that is rich in story, and I could not possibly cover it all in just one episode. But in giving an overview, 
perhaps a spark will be ignited and curiosity can carry you further. It was just before sunrise, on the longest day of the year. The midsummer heat had not yet warmed the cool of the night. The light of the morning had not yet touched the dark violet sky. Stars twinkled above, a glittering canopy fading with the glow of the coming dawn. Suddenly, a shimmer fluttered the grass. A shiver passed through the breeze. A man appeared in long, flowing, pale robes. His feet were bare, and his beard was long. White strands of hair swirled gently around his shoulders as he watched in stillness, statuesque upon the earthen mound. An ancient barrow crowned the hill, enveloped in blooming fields and deep green shrubbery, and this man stood atop the crest, luminous against the deep sky. He faced east, towards the delicate rays of the rising sun. A large hound lay beside him, gazing dreamily in the same direction. Startling red ears shone like fire against the light fabric of the man's garment draped to the ground. They walked, slowly, measured and focused towards the rising sun. They moved with the assured pace of a ritual, one that had been enacted thousands of times. As the light grew, the striking clarity of their presence began to fade. As golden rays stretched across the expanse of the land, they began to dissipate. And just as the full strength of the morning light filled the eastern sky, the man and his hound turned silently into the entrance of the barrow. Not a sound was made, and they were not seen again. The only movement that escaped their absence was the subtle shimmer of the grass. This is the legend of the man and his hound, who are rumored to appear in midsummer on the morning of the solstice, the longest day of the year. It is said that they appear at sunrise, then turn silently into the tomb entrance, from which they do not emerge until the following year. The ancient site they are associated with is the West Kennet Long Barrow, near the Avebury Stone Circle in the heart of Wiltshire. Sightings of this elegant ghostly figure and his brilliant red dog have been reported by numerous accounts, especially by local farmers who are often awake and ready for work at those early hours. If these sightings are true, then this haunting figure would be one of the oldest known ghosts in the world. The West Kennet Long Barrow dates back over 3,000 years, estimated to have been established around 3600 BC. Farmers built this as a burial mound and a ritual site for their community in the Neolithic period. It's a site older than Stonehenge, than Avebury. In fact, the tomb was sealed just before work on the massive Avebury Stone Circle began. The West Kennet Long Barrow is one of the largest, most striking chambered tombs of its kind in all the world. 
It belongs to what archaeologists categorize as the Cotswold 7, situated on a high ridge among rounded, sloping landscape of patchwork fields. The land here is chalk bedrock. If you were to dig into the ground, the earth below the topsoil would appear white. Today, the barrow appears as an earthen mound covered in grass and framed by large vertical stones of sarsen and limestone. At the time of its construction, when it was first carved from the landscape, it would have been a brilliant white color. The site would have shone like a beacon at the top of the emerald green hill and unified the surrounding communities in gathering to honor their ancestors. The chambered tombs of Western Europe are some of the oldest deliberate stone structures on earth, second only to the raised stones found in Turkey. They were all established in proximity to what historians refer to as the Atlantic facade, the western edge of the known world where the land became the infinite sea. These ancient sites signify a time when the consciousness of human beings shifted and revolutionized how they viewed the land, how they lived. Up until the Neolithic period, people were nomadic. They moved across the terrain seeking food and shelter and never attempted to establish those things for themselves. Farming, livestock, these technologies shifted the lives and psyches of mankind. They began to notice the movement of the sky, the cycles of the sun, the moon, and the stars. They became more acutely aware of the pace of the seasons and weather patterns. They began to develop tools and techniques to manipulate the land and build their homes. Staying in one place created communities, rituals, and a kind of awareness as people began to process their surroundings from a point of stillness. It is through this transformation that the creation of tombs begins. The West Kennet Long Barrow would have held a sacred significance to those who built it. This hollow earthen chamber, raised from the chalk bedrock, was a place to house the bones of the dead. The barrow was orientated from east to west, with the entrance facing the rising sun. This design is symbolic of the life cycle how our lives rise and set just as the day becomes night. Bones were laid in this chambered tomb as a collective to become a part of the whole with others who had passed before them. Evidence suggests that this tomb would have remained open, with bones brought in and out of the interior for several generations. The West Kennet Long Barrow did not function in the same manner as an ossuary or modern cemetery, as not many remains were permanently left in the tomb. It appears as though the people laid to rest here were either selected by the community, maybe for adulatory reasons, or that they were only housed in the chamber for a brief period of time before being relocated as other remains were brought in. Curiously, after remaining open across several generations, the tomb's entrance was ceremoniously blocked with enormous sarsen stones, never to reopen. We cannot know why they decided to seal the tomb, but we can speculate that it ceased to be in use just as work on the massive Avery Stone Circle had begun a little over a mile away. Maybe they no longer had a use for it? 
or the site continued to be visited, just not the interior. There's no real way to know. Their memory is carried through the shards of pottery, fragments of bone, and mysterious burial chamber that housed them. One of the most spectacular things about the West Kennet Long Barrow is that it's open today, and you can walk right in. The site is at the top of a hill surrounded by farm fields. A small wooden signpost directs your path from the highway, and a simple information sign is set just before the tomb's entrance. You can walk on top of the mound or through the chambers inside. The chambers have been cleared of the ancient remains, but are not completely empty. Often, you'll see offerings left of apples, flowers, stones, candles, and incense. It's a place deeply significant to many, even to this day. There are glass blocks set into the top of the central chamber to allow natural daylight to filter in and illuminate the way. The central chamber is quite tall and most people of average height can walk in without even having to stoop down. The side chambers are much lower and very dark. (laughs) The barrow offers a beautiful vantage point where you can take in the surrounding gentle landscape and see the towering shape of Silbury Hill. Barrows are broadly considered to be sites of heightened spiritual awareness, a liminal space, a doorway to another world. People have had a range of experiences inside the chambers of the West Kennet Long Barrow. Many visitors recount it as a place that feels sacred and soothing, much like the atmosphere of a cathedral. For some, the act of walking into an ancient earthen tomb is thrilling and somewhat haunting. Others have described an overwhelming feeling of dread from stepping in. There's one harrowing account from the early 1990s when a young couple decided to visit the barrow on holiday. As one stepped outside, the other felt invisible arms grab and pull her forcibly towards the lower chamber. She explained that it felt like every movement she made was weighed down, as though she were trudging through heavy water. She eventually managed to pull away from the invisible force and run straight out after what felt like an eternity inside. When exploring what the significance of the West Kennet Long Barrow may have been, it's important to broaden the scope and consider the context of the area surrounding it. From the top of the barrow, the monumental Silvery Hill is clearly visible. Avery is just over a mile away and Stonehenge is in the proximity. Perhaps this massive effort to transform the natural landscape was a way of expressing a new understanding of the universe and where they stood within it, or to establish a kind of central gathering place for the many families and small communities scattered about the land. When people began anchoring themselves to one location, the movement of all surrounding them held a new significance. Creating methods to mark the passage of time, of seasons for planting and hunting, this was all essential to survival. The cycle of life would have come into view more clearly from being still and one of the key shapes we see created in the land from this period is the emergence of circles.
The blue glow of twilight illuminated the darkening sky as Edith drove through the English countryside. She was traveling to the village of Marlborough when a flicker of firelight in the distance caught her attention. Intrigued, Edith pulled to the side of the road just as a light curtain of rain began to fall. Though her view was obscured by the mist, she could see what appeared to be a celebration of sorts, a gathering in the distance. Among the cottages and megalithic stones, she could make out a crowd with torches. At what appeared to be a small fair with booths and shows. Swing boats flew in and out of the faint circle of light, and the tinkling sound of broken bottles rang through the pattering drizzle. People passed one another in the distance, in the shadow of the great stones that enveloped their festivities. Edith watched them, captivated, until the rain fell harder and began to flow down the back of her neck. Not wanting to be drenched, she climbed back into her car and continued on her way. Several years passed before Edith returned to Avebury. While she was in the area, curiosity guided her to revisit the spot where she had seen the towering alley of stones and the festival. When she reached the place where she had been, she was astonished to discover that the stones she so clearly remembered were no longer there. After consulting a guidebook, Edith learned that the last Avebury Fair was held in 1850, 66 years before she had seen it. So, what exactly did Edith see from the roadside on that cool, rainy evening? This is a story that writer Edith Oliver shared in her book, Without Knowing Mr. Walkley, from her experience driving through Avebury during World War I in the year 1916. She is far from the only person to experience strange and mysterious occurrences in this legendary part of Wiltshire. Many stories surround this ancient stone circle and the village at its center. A circle is universal. It is the center, the origin, and the eternal. It embodies the cycle of all things. Nature forms circles in the curve of waves, the unfurling of flowers, the shape of the sun. To the ancient people of Wiltshire, their legacy is left to us in fragments of circles, carved and built upon the landscape with powerful determination and enigmatic motives. We cannot know what their intentions were, or how exactly these expansive sites were developed. What we can trace is that these were multi-generational efforts enduring centuries, that whatever the origin, their intentions lived in the act of creating, and not the completion. Can any of us in our modern age imagine what it would have been like to work on something so vast that you never expected to see it finished. Over the course of your lifetime, your children's and your grandchildren's, one of the most fascinating examples of such an effort can be found in Europe's oldest, largest Neolithic stone circle, the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Avebury. 
The stone circles at Avebury are believed to have served as a kind of stationary clock, a marker to anchor the spinning cosmos and make sense of time, a fixed point of reference. This created a centralized meeting place for scattered communities and families where everyone knew to go for gatherings. At the heart of the circle stands a massive stone, estimated to be over a hundred tons. This stone is known as the Cove. It is believed that this enormous Sarsen monument was not moved into place, but that it was already there and built around. Ancestors of this time may have wondered, is this the fallen body of a giant? Was this placed by the people who made the world? Has it stood since the beginning of all things? What we see today in Avebury is essentially a skeleton. The bones that remain are the cornerstone record of a people long ago. Our imaginations are tasked with filling in the empty space to close our eyes and wonder what this place may have meant and how the people who built it spent time here. Maybe they gathered around fires in the dusk of the evening, young people laughing and talking freely in the glowing light as their elders gazed through the brightness to read shadows cast upon the stones. Was this a place of ritual where the dead were laid to rest? And the colossal stones, how did they decide where to place them? Were they once painted? Maybe decorated in some ceremonial way or smeared with the blood of animals? It's been observed that the arrangement of the stones at Avebury may have evoked masculine and feminine energy, with the tall gray stones representing the male and the broad pale stones the female. There is no way to really know, only ideas to interpret from what remains. The construction of Avebury is estimated to have begun around 2500 BC, when the outermost ring was dug from the earth. The people who made this would have been equipped with natural tools, such as muscles and antlers, and ones they fashioned themselves from the stone. Chalk downland is the natural landscape. Countless hours would have been spent laboring to dig the full 30-foot depth, and it would have taken generations of time. This impressive endeavor was already collapsing on itself before the first circle was completed, but those who made it never went back to adjust the parts that had caved in. They left it and moved on to the next phase of their build. Their steadfast determination is every bit as mysterious as the initial reason for doing it. Many theorized that the circle's placement had to do with ley lines, natural currents of energy that course through the earth, believed to be particularly strong at sites like Avebury. The outer circle is so large that for centuries no one realized it was man-made. It appeared to be natural because of the sheer scale of it. In the 18th century, antiquarian William Stukeley theorized that this area was part of a formation of a great serpent, and that Avebury was connected to other ancient sites. Though he could not see this from above to confirm it. When planes began to cross over the fields during the First World War, pilots noticed the patterns from a vantage point they'd never before had. 
This only deepens the mystery as to how these ancient people understood what they were creating. Long ago, this region in England was encrusted in stone, later eroded and transformed by glaciers. The stone broke into boulders over time and is known as sarsen. Sarsen stones are gray in color and very hard, composed of sand and a siliceous cement. The stones used to construct sites like Avebury are a combination of sarsen and limestone. They were moved into place and erected vertically, with about one-third of the stone's full height embedded in the earth. Only 76 of the estimated 600 stones are still standing today, and some are believed to be buried. The occupation of the Romans, the spread of Christianity, and ignorance to the stone circle's significance led to considerable destruction over the years until archaeologists of the 18th century recognized this site's historical importance and made efforts to halt its demise, people were heating and breaking the stones for building materials. Today, what remains of the circle is protected, and a village of Anglo-Saxon origin resides at its center. Avebury Village is a unique, charming place with enchanting thatched roof cottages and backyard gardens. Two of the main attractions in town are an Anglo-Saxon church and graveyard near the town center and an iconic pub down High Street known as the Red Lion. The building of the Red Lion was constructed in the 1600s with whitewashed walls, a thickly thatched roof, and a rustic sign hanging above the entrance. It was originally a farmhouse before becoming a coaching inn around 1802. Incidentally, it is the only pub in the world surrounded by a prehistoric stone circle. It also holds the reputation of being one of the most haunted pubs in all of the United Kingdom. The Red Lion Pub is home to several notorious ghosts. Some have claimed to see and hear a phantom carriage clattering along the cobbled courtyard. This sighting is feared to be a harbinger of death, according to previous landlords. One of the resident ghosts is a phantom with a tragic past, known as Flory. Legend has it that during the English Civil War in the 17th century, Flory's husband returned home unexpectedly to find her in the arms of another man. Possessed by rage, he shot the other man and slit Flory's throat in an act of ruthless vengeance. It is then believed that he dragged her body to a well and threw her in. Afterwards, he sealed the opening with a large boulder. It is said that Flory's ghost remains on the grounds, searching for a man with a beard, though no one is quite sure whether the man she seeks is her slain lover or her murderous husband. The 17th century well where the tragedy is said to have happened is inside the pub with a clear top that allows curious visitors to peer inside. One occasion recounts a chandelier spinning wildly above a customer seemingly out of nowhere. The manager rushed over to see what was happening and noted that the customer seated beneath it had a rather large bushy beard. The pub is also rumored to be home to a pair of spectral children who are believed to haunt the avenue bedroom. Guests have seen them cowering against a wall while a woman sits calmly writing at a table. 
Odd floating lights, mysterious shadows, and intense cold spots are but a few of the many experiences guests of the Red Lion have reported. Yet, there are others who find the atmospheric charm, creaking floorboards, and dimly lit corridors to be inviting, calming, and even peaceful. This is one historic site where every experience is completely unique to the person passing through. Emerging from the Red Lion on a cool evening and walking the streets of Avebury Village, one might see the shadow of a large black dog lurking along the edge of the woods. Tales of black dog sightings are abundant throughout Wiltshire. Some stories describe these specters as omens of death. Others see them as protectors, whose size is as large as the fears of the observer. In any case, it's advised to avoid them. You may notice strange lights flashing above and rotating in the sky. As quick as you could blink, they would vanish. Wiltshire is known for a host of UFO sightings and unexplained aerial phenomena. And walking the paths that wind through the fields, you may notice patches of wheat and barley laid flat. Crop circles are legendary here known to appear overnight in remarkable intricacy and scope. If you were to gaze into the expanse of the standing stones, you may see ghostly figures passing through at nighttime, or hear singing where no human forms can be found. Stories warn against invoking the wrath of the guardians, the spirits attributed to protecting the stones. Warning tales of deadly accidents where large stones have fallen on those seeking to destroy them abound throughout the history of Avebury. Excavations have revealed evidence of one such tale, where the skull of a man was found alongside coins and artifacts from the 14th century, a period in time when the church was encouraging the destruction of the stones as pagan artifacts. It appears as though the stone had toppled onto this man and it was so heavy that his neighbors had to leave it. The tools found with his remains suggest that he had been a barber, and the stone that crushed him, now erected upright in its original position, is known as the Barber Stone. The majestic standing stones of Avebury inspire wonder and trepidation, profound curiosity and amazement. Unlike Stonehenge, visitors can walk among and touch the stones of Avebury, be immersed in the age, the magic, and the enigma of their existence. It's a living piece of history that all are free to experience, whoever wanders through. you into our own experience of traveling to Wiltshire and everything that we encountered there. Uh, my wonderful boyfriend Brian and I went on our very first international trip in September of 2010 and I had been researching guidebooks. I was very excited to do a backpacking trip through the United Kingdom in the fall like when the weather is 
cool and crisp and a little bit misty and it just everything was lining up so beautifully and we were making decisions on how to narrow down our itinerary because there was so much we wanted to see and I had been researching the area around Stonehenge and that is how I discovered Avebury and the adjacent sites like the West Kennet Longbarrow and Silvery Hill and all of these amazing places that are a little bit lesser known, you know, to people that haven't traveled or researched that part of the world. And so we looked at our options and we realized that we could either take a bus towards Stonehenge or a tour and experience it from a distance, or we could use that same period of time that we had to spend a night near Avebury, which is very much a kind of sister site to Stonehenge, but much older. And there's a living village of 14th century buildings inside of it. There's a pub that was built in the 1600s that you can go into and enjoy a drink at. There's, it's like you could actually walk through the fields and be right up to touch the stones and really experience the place. And when we thought of it that way, it became a pretty clear decision. So we found a beautiful bed and breakfast in West Kennet, which deceptively seems a little closer than it is to the bus stop. So when we got there, we wound up taking a bus from the lovely city of Bath because we we didn't have a car. We did everything by the trains and public transportation on this trip. And we, we got onto our brightly colored bus. The interior of it was like vivid orange and blue. I remember so clearly. And we were driving through this rainy, misty, quintessentially British day. The weather was gray. The, the air was damp and cool. And the entire feeling was this atmosphere of seeing the mist and the gray sky over the brilliant green emerald rolling hills and patchworks of fields and tones of amber in the wheat fields. It was absolutely beautiful. And it also struck me that we were really in the middle of nowhere. So so we're on this bus and we come to this bus stop on a little curving highway And it's right at the edge of Avebury, directly next to the Red Lion Pub, that pub that was built in the 1600s and has the reputation of being the most haunted pub, one of the most haunted, at least, in all of the United Kingdom. So right away, you see this amazing thatched roof building. And thatched roofs, they're so fantastic when you see them in person for the first time. They appear very, very thick and very heavy and almost sculpted. Um, You get to see up close the kind of layers of, of netting and things they put on them to reinforce. And it was just so cool. And right away I was like, wow, we're here. And then you look to the opposite side of the street and you see the massive megalith stones just there in the field. And Knowing a little bit about the history and how mysterious and magnificent this is, it really strikes you like, wow. And they don't appear that quite that big until you're a little closer. And then it's very humbling (laughs) to stand beside one and wonder 
how exactly it got there. For it, it truly is. So we were off of the bus in the parking lot, getting soaked by the rain, just kind of looking around in total wonder and awe. And our wonderful bed and breakfast host offered to pick us up because she explained to us that it was quite a walk from the bus stop and we might not want to make that trek in this weather, especially if we were hoping to see any part of the village, you know, before it was time to, you know, just kind of settle in for the evening. Because once it gets dark there, it's very dark. There are no street lights and um, everything closes. It's a small village, so you don't really have any late night, you know, things to to take shelter in. <laughs> so she came to pick us up and she was absolutely lovely. Lovely middle-aged woman with gorgeous blonde hair and drove us. It was a little over a mile to the bed and breakfast where we stayed at her place. And she gave me a skeleton key larger than the length of my hand. And we were in this little adjacent kind of, it wasn't freestanding. It was attached, but it was an addition that had been put in next to this traditional, gorgeous stone cottage style building. I, I got there and I was blown away. It looked like it was straight out of a fairy tale. And she had a kettle set up for tea and everything we could possibly need. So we changed out of our wet clothes. We made some tea. We watched the rain and marveled at the fact that we were in this village next to sites that were some of the oldest known established things in all of humanity. And it just, it was overwhelming. And also it's like, is this, it was weirdly surreal, but it was so exciting at the same time. We'd never been anywhere like that. And on a humorous note, because it is a lot of open land and rolling hills and fields, it wasn't that far off (laughs) in terms of the quiet and the open sky and the small highway to where I had grown up in rural Indiana. The landscape was absolutely different and felt different, but the nature of the space in between places and the solitude, it reminded me a little bit of walking through the country roads in Indiana. And I was very amused by that to make those connections and also appreciate the differences So we were getting restless and we were so hungry. And even though it was still raining a little bit, Brian and I decided to put on our raincoats and our warm socks and our waterproof boots and just go for it. So we set off back down the highway where we came. And it wasn't evening yet. It was very late afternoon. But everything had the feeling of it being past closing hours. So we were walking as briskly as we could (laughs) straight to the Red Lion pub because we didn't want to miss an opportunity to eat dinner. We didn't think there would really be much else around there (laughs) that would be open late. So, um, so we walked pretty quickly and this was before smartphones were, were common. This was when international phone calling cards were a thing So we didn't have Google or Google Maps or any of that available to us. We had the maps that I'd printed, the verbal directions from our bed and breakfast host, and our memory of which direction we turned on that one two-lane highway that took us back towards food. And we just went for it. 
So fortunately, we turned the correct direction and we we saw the stones coming into view the closer we got. And it was amazing because you're walking down a two lane highway and on either side, it is fields with little patches of groves and forests and the entire place feels like like Middle Earth. It reminded me of the way that Tolkien would describe the Shire and places like that. And as I was walking through the drizzly rain, hoping we'd get to the pub on time, I I just remember reflecting on, are these places that Tolkien and other writers and artists would have would have gone for inspiration because it felt like it was straight from the pages of some of those novels that I loved reading when I was growing up. And so on that thought, we looked to our left because we heard some pretty obnoxious noises and the entire, the entire left side of the highway became a cow pasture and there were very large cows all standing clustered together, just doing their mooing thing. And I remember being so amused by the fact that there's these cows being cows next to these ancient and incredible old stones that are so entrenched in mystery and ritual and wonder and history and just, you know, the, uh, the balance of the two was kind of humorous. So I'm checking out some cows. I'm looking to these beautiful groves of trees. I see the the mound kind of slope up where one of the ridges is that they've put a, a path down so you can walk along it and explore the site. And we go past all of that. The pub comes into view and we're able to get to the door and get in and it's open and we're so relieved. So being inside the Red Lion pub, it's it's an experience. You can feel the age of the place. It almost feels a little bit museum-like when you're there and it's just you. Like when Brian and I walked in, we were the only customers. We asked if they were open and they were like, oh, sure, have a seat. And we were like, okay. And I noticed this, this well with like a clear top over it. At the time, I didn't know the legend about Flory and, and her tragic phantom that haunts the premises. I... I got the feeling it was probably haunted, but it wasn't it wasn't scary, it wasn't eerie. It just didn't feel empty by any stretch of the imagination. It's a place where you you definitely feel the history. And I remember we ordered some delicious hearty food. We had stew and bread and we split a dish of shepherd's pie, you know, just things to just warm our bellies. I remember drinking some local local cider I think it was it was very good but anything that could warm us up and really give us some good fuel for the rest of the night <laughs> we were we were hungry we'd been on the bus all day we'd just you know been kind of overwhelmed by how incredible this place was already and did about a two-mile walk so so we ate but as hungry as I was I remember not being able to pay really that much attention to, to food because I was so captivated by the interior. And it, it was just, it was like something out of the imagination. You had the creaking floorboards and the kind of plastered looking white walls and these, these kind of rafty type. It was just, 
it was it was beautiful you could feel it it felt so old and I remember allowing my mind to wander into who may have sat there before I had and what stories had come through in this place that that nobody did that nobody had ever written down and uh that was what was occupying my imagination. I remember asking some of the people working there. There was only two or three, two or three men that were kind of wandering about waiting for closing time, I imagine. <laughs> they were great, though. And they told us to walk up the main street, and they let us know that there were a few different sites. Like there was a local gift shop that would be open tomorrow that would be really fun because it was owned and operated by the people who lived in Avebury and I was excited for that. He also let us know that there was a church that dated back to Anglo-Saxon times just up the street and I was like well that's amazing. I mean it had it had been restored and things had been added since 1000 BC but the origin the blueprint was still there and we were like that sounds amazing so after we ate, we thanked them and we walked up, I believe it's called High Street, the main center road, which is also where the bus had dropped us off. And to my knowledge, it's really like the one main road that kind of passes through Avebury with some offshoots. And that one two-lane highway that took us to West Kennet that met the main road of Avebury. So there aren't big street lights, there aren't other highways, it's very quiet. It's very remote, and that is beautiful. So the rain had stopped, at least for the moment, and it was getting to be evening. The sky was starting to turn colors. The sun had come out a little bit from the gray blanket of clouds. And I remember watching the light from the windows shine on the, the dampness of the street and illuminating everything. Everything felt so rich and vibrant and colorful because of the rain that had been falling all day. And it was enchanting. And Brian and I were the only two people out there. So to walk down the main road of Avebury Village and to just be captivated, absolutely fascinated with the styles of buildings, they have cottages there from the 14th century buildings with thatched roofs and stone walls and English gardens and little delicate roses and, you know, flowering vines climbing up the sides of things. It was beautiful. It looked like something out of a painting. I felt like I was walking into a painting. And um, as we walked and I looked around, we turned to our right and we saw the church. And what was so cool about this church, I believe it's St. James. That's the name of it. It has a small churchyard with gravestones that that you walk on a path through the center of to go into the cathedral. And it we didn't go into the church because it was getting late. We saw lights inside, but in case there was a service or something, we didn't want to interrupt. So we thought we might go check out the inside tomorrow when we came back. But we did walk around the graveyard and Brian was delighted because he saw an enormous black cat draped over the arc of a tombstone. And it had these shining green gold eyes. And it was just very relaxed, its little tail tapping up and down. And it just watched us 
And I was like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder who's there. You know, the, who, whose tomb is he sleeping on? But he seemed very much in his element. And uh, I remember it seemed like there was some maybe tree line or woods bordering it. So it was very shadowy. And we were beginning to lose the daylight. And all of the lights from the windows were becoming a deeper, glowy, amber, golden color that was starting to kind of brighten everything as it fell into silhouette. You could see the moon rising. It was almost a full moon, not quite. You know, maybe like two days off from the peak of the full moon. And you could see the moon rise. And it was rising in the west at the time over where the stones were. And it was amazing to see that, to see a nearly full moon rise in a blue and rose sky over these ancient stones was was just gorgeous. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, I need to paint this. <laughs> it was amazing. So we left the church and the cat and walked back to the main road and decided to at least start making our way back before we completely lost the light. Because now we at least had a sense of the one direction we had to follow. <laughs> we had the moon to guide us going west and I had a flashlight, so we were fine. So I remember we found a little path, I want to say, that cut between the houses and it went into the field where the stones were. We were like, oh, let's follow this. We can cut through and then eventually make our way to the road and see a little bit of the stones up close. And the, the side of the road we were following would have been the right side, the side with the cows in the westward direction. Um, so we, we walked into the field and the grass was probably about ankle high, wasn't super tall grass. There were cow pies, giant dinner plate sized ones. <laughs> so my gaze was constantly darting from not stepping in those and wanting to look at the beautiful night sky because as the night fell and we were walking, I, I clicked on my flashlight to check, you know, check our feet. <laughs> but in a place that remote, these stars are st stunning. It is like a glittering canopy above you. And the clouds had dissipated, the rain had stopped, and we could not only see the moon, but some of these brilliant stars as the sky darkened. And it was just it was magical. It really was. And it was quiet. And I imagine certain people would probably be a little freaked out because like there is a bit of an eeriness as comfortable as I am with being in the country time at, at night. There's a little bit of an eeriness and that natural instinct of just watch where you're going. So Brian and I were definitely experiencing that. But we were also so enthralled to be there that that kind of overcame any fear that we were feeling. And uh, and so we walked kind of at an angle, sloping towards the highway, and we began to see the glints of cows, like, in, in their eyes and in, in the dark, and that was a little disconcerting because I'm very comfortable around cows. I grew up around them. However, cows at nighttime staring at you, it's a little unnerving, and they were watching us. <laughs> so we're walking in the dark. I've got my flashlight. We're trying not to feel creeped out by the cows. They're making weird noises. It's fine. And then Brian just stops. He goes, Jesse, look. And I'm like, what, what? And I look up and there's these, these weird lights 
these weird lights that kind of like zigzag like a lightning but not and then they just disappear like they kind of like spin a little bit and zoom gone and I was like what was that and I managed to like grab my camera and try to take a picture of them really quick but you just you see the circle of the moon and this bright golden zigzaggy thing and that was basically what it was able to capture and Brian was like was that a UFO did we just see a UFO and I'm like that's entirely possible because that is what I would think a UFO might look like. I don't know. And we had not heard of all of the reputation that that area has in Wiltshire for being a fantastic site for UFO reportings. We had no idea. So that was part of the excitement too, is like, we saw this light. We weren't expecting it. We weren't anticipating it, but it definitely happened. (laughs) So we, we were very excited, but walking a little bit faster at that point to get back to the bed and breakfast because we were like, okay. <laughs> and I remember as we, um, as we made it to the highway and walked the rest of the length of it before our turn to go to West Kennet, there was this dark camper van parked on the roadside. I don't know if anyone was in there. But it looked like they had some bumper stickers and the truth is out there kind of stuff plastered on it, maybe some antenna equipment. And I was like, oh, my goodness, are we in a place where people search for UFOs and write about them? This might be. We'll have to read about this. This is amazing. So we we eventually got back and our feet were sore and our minds were just like buzzing and we couldn't sleep. And I made more tea. And I remember staring through the gap of these lovely floral curtains through our window and looking into what I could see of the night sky and just being absolutely fascinated. And I uh, I think I stayed awake long enough to write a little bit of this in my journal before the exhaustion overtook me and I, I passed out. And I remember dreaming about bright lights kind of descending on us that were super, super vivid. And then I woke up and I remember (laughs) checking to make sure Brian was next to me and he was. So my imagination was going wild at this point. I'm having dreams about lights and potential alien abductions, but we're both there. It was very early in the morning and I had this incredible want to go for a walk. I just, I wanted to see more. So I whispered to Brian because he likes to sleep in and I was like, hey, I'm going to take the giant key and I'm going to just walk around the neighborhood. Okay. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. Go, just go. I'm tired. I'm like, okay, okay, cool. I'll be back. Don't panic. I didn't get abducted. And he laughed. So, <laughs> so he's sleeping in a little bit and it's probably about six thirty-seven in the morning. It's quite early, not before dawn early, but nobody's awake yet early, really. And I am walking through the village of West Kennet, and it is literally like something out of a fairy tale. There's low stone walls, there's cottages, there's gorgeous old trees, there's winding neighborhood roads, and it's very small, but so beautiful. And to see that at dawn, to be the only person on the road passing through, it was, it was incredible. So, um, so yeah, that was my first true daylight impression of where we were. 
And I took my time walking back. Brian was just ready to get up when I had. We made more tea and our host had invited us to breakfast. So we went into the main part of the house to the kitchen. She made the most incredible traditional English breakfast. It had the tomatoes and the sausage and the eggs and the magnificent bread. I hope I'm remembering it correctly. I just, I remember we had like four or five options and Brian and I were both like, we really want some juice and some traditional English breakfast. And it was awesome. Probably not the kind of thing I could eat every morning, but at the time, so perfect. It was kind of neat because there was an older couple that knew the area very well. They were the only other guests and we could kind of hear them talking about where they were going. And somehow in conversation as we're sitting in this incredible kitchen of hers, our host and the older couple started talking to us about what we were going to go see that day. And we talked about going back to Avebury and walking through the stone circle and our experience at the Red Lion pub the night before. And they were very excited. And they said, you're going to go see the Barrow, right? If you like old sites. And we were like, what's the Barrow? And they were like, oh, you have to go. It, it's the West Kennet Long Barrow. It's one of the best, best burial, you know, chambered tombs in all of Europe. And it's literally a half mile away. You could walk there. And I was like, well, that sounds amazing. What's it like? And they were explaining that you could walk into the tomb. There weren't any remains, but it was open. And it was at the top of a hill and had stunning views of the countryside. And And I was like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so Brian and I got our giant key and we left the bulk of our stuff in our room, but kind of had things packed up, you know, so it was fairly ready to go. And we walked through the countryside and and made our way following little wooden hiker signs to the West Kennet Long Barrow. And from the roadside, there's this magnificent tree and a small standing stone. And you can see the faintest hint of a little path that curves from the road and goes straight up the hill. And this thing, the moment you're in front of it, you can see it. It's further than it looks. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's not an enormous site, but it's quite large and a fairly steep hill. And you walk up the field and get to this. It is a giant earthen mound. It's very, it's very narrow. It's quite long. And it was surprisingly fairly tall. You know, I'm five foot three and I could walk into there without ducking at any point. There are lower chambers to the sides where you would need to stoop to enter, but the main body, the central chamber, you can walk into without, without having to duck down. So we walk up this beautiful hill surrounded by rolling hills and woods and fields. And we come to the top of the hill and we're just in awe. We're, they have a, an information sign posted that gives you a little bit of context about the site. We were the only people there. It was probably about mid-morning to midday, the time we were there. And the sun had really come out today. It was quite warm. The lighting was very sharp and direct and bright. I just remember the stones that were there where the grass hadn't overgrown them were glowing white with almost a bluish cast to them. They were very tall, fairly smooth, and elongated and almost standing up like 
like teeth. I don't know, like in the landscape. <laughs> and they were around the entrance. And uh, so we walked along the top of the tomb first before we went inside. And they have little glass blocks embedded in the top that allow the natural daylight to filter in. And that's beautiful because whatever time of day you're able to appreciate the tomb without the need for artificial lighting. So we walked around the top and the sides, read the information about it, and then proceeded to go inside. And to me, it had it had a very revered feeling, like a hallowed feeling. It felt like a sacred place. I can't explain it, but it really did. It wasn't scary. I mean, we were there in the middle of the day, and it's not like at least that we know of that there are currently remains in there, but there were for, for centuries, and it was a very important site to the people who built it before they decided to close it and go start work on building Avebury, which in itself is fascinating. So Brian and I walked into the chamber tomb, and I was so just amazed that, that this existed, and we were able to really step into history like this. I was thankful that we were seeing it in the time we were because back in the day with all of the bodies in there and the bones of their ancestors, that's a pretty contained space and it would have probably smelled horrendous. <laughs> so, so it was kind of great to be able to see it in this century. Then again, back then that might not have bothered people like, like it affects us. I don't know. But uh, when you go back into the main chamber, you can see on the stone ledges where people leave offerings. Like when we were there, there was a partially eaten apple, some dried flower petals. I want to say there were like beads of some kind, like little glass and, and uh, clay beads that somebody had left and the remnants of some incense that somebody had burned. And I was like, wow, people must come here to meditate or pray or just connect. And uh, from what I understand, it is that kind of a place to people. So, yeah, so we basically were able to explore this site completely by ourselves and, and really take it in. And it felt like walking into a church. It had that kind of respect where you are kind of vibe about it. Yet it's so much older than any church I have ever stepped in. And the orientation is east to west. The, the entrance faces the rising sun, just as Christian churches do. So there's a fascinating connective thread there in the way that we celebrate life and our awareness of life. So when we came back out of the tomb, we walked around the outside a bit more. And I remember Brian finding a little fragment of bone and being excited. <laughs> it was... Uh, we don't know if it was animal or human. It was a small knuckle-looking thing, but it was definitely bone. And he picked it up and looked at it, and we respectfully set it right back down where we found it. <laughs> and we just, we stood up there taking in the views of how gorgeous it was. We could see the kind of sloping giant mound of Silvery Hill over in the distance, which is about where we saw those crazy lights in the sky. And we noticed that there were helicopters buzzing around, like black helicopters. And uh, our, our bed and breakfast host had told us at the time that the Silvery Hill site was closed, but we weren't sure why. We figured probably for restoration. So we weren't able to go to Silvery Hill or, or get close to it, but 
seeing this enormous man-made six-acre mound from a distance, that was incredible. It was just, it was amazing to look at, you know, and just wonder at. So after we took in the views a little bit, we decided to slowly make our way back, say farewell to the West Kennet Long Barrow, at least for this trip. And as we walked down the hill, we passed in probably a, a middle-aged couple, I want to say, that were out for a hike, and they were incredibly friendly. And uh, it was a beautiful day. It was a really beautiful experience to walk up there and celebrate it in a way that was very respectful and that gave us so much space and ability to take in what we were seeing. So from that point, we walked back down the hill and followed, you know, our route back the way we came. And we wound up taking the turn on the highway to go to the Avebury village. And that was an experience because at this point, we were able to see the expanse of the stones in the bright daylight. And that completely changed the feeling of it. It really, it illuminated the size and the scale of the place. And everything was brighter. But I'm also so glad that our first impression was on a misty, rainy day because something about that overcast weather really augmented it into this enchanting feeling to be there and feel feel the mystery of it, you know. But being there in the daylight, we were able to take in more of the gorgeous spectacle of what it was. And it is so big that you can't really see the circular formations of things when you're there. All the same, though, you can appreciate it. And it definitely, you can tell that it's intentional. You can tell that it's not random. I would love someday to be above that site maybe in a hot air balloon if they do that, to look at, at the entirety of it as a whole and the shapes that it forms and see the circle rings. And I feel like there's a whole other dimension to it to be appreciated when you're looking at it from above. So we got to Avebury Village and everything was open and we went into the local you know, gift shop as our friends had recommended the night before. And it was amazing. They had locally published books on the mythic folklore of trees and the symbolism of trees. They had handmade jewelry from local artisans. They had uh, dowsing rods that they sold for people that wanted to go follow the ley lines and see if the rods would cross. That's a thing that people love to do at these kinds of places. And the, the shop owners were just delightful. They were so funny. I saw a gentleman ask them if they had the paper. And she goes, oh, we don't carry the national news. It's too depressing. We just have the local news here. And she gave him like the Avery Gazette or whatever it was. And I was like, this is beautiful. So, uh, and most of the other tourists we saw were from other parts of the United Kingdom, at least at that time of year. There, there weren't any other Americans. There really weren't. It was a place that I saw people traveling to to appreciate in their own country. And I thought that was very significant and very cool. Like, wow, this is where people come on holiday who who live here. And it made this place seem all the more significant. And it helped us talk to more locals and really connect with the place on a, on a bigger level. So we spent our day walking through the stone circle 
going in and out of the little churches and the shops and just appreciating everything. And eventually, towards the end of the day, we got back on the bus and we we started making our way to London to a completely different kind of fascination. <laughs> but yeah, that that was our time in Wiltshire. We were able to really see the West Kent at Longbarrow, spend a, a wonderful amount of time in Avebury, and see, at least from a distance, the scale and and the weirdness of Silbury Hill. <laughs> you know, it's in all honesty, it's it's kind of strange. It's a large, large sloping grassy mound, and you can't help but wonder why they built it. Was it a burial tomb? Was it to signify to other people in the surrounding communities that, hey, if you're coming from a distance, you're going the right way? <laughs> we really can't know, but being there, being able to, to just marvel at it firsthand was one of the most remarkable, memorable experiences I've had as a traveler, and I would love to go back and spend an extended period of time in Wiltshire. I would love to see some of the other villages. I'd love to, to see Stonehenge, because unfortunately, in, in our itinerary, we weren't able to do everything, so we had to make some choices, but, but I would absolutely return and see Stonehenge when we're able to go back there someday, and I would love love to stay in in Avery for a longer period of time, really get to talk to some of the locals more, and just follow a path and see where it leads. The landscape there is very sloping and very gentle and very open. There are trees, there are beautiful old groves of forest, but it's not, it's a place that's very accessible if you love walking, if you love biking, And the major bonus is you're in the middle of this ancient site as you're doing those things. So I'd be curious to see what you might discover being there for a longer period of time and really getting off of of the main road a little bit more. But at least I can give you our experience and the things that we discovered to spark your curiosity, engage your imagination a little bit, and maybe inspire a future trip. And on that note, thank you so much for coming with me on this journey through Wiltshire, England, on the very first episode of the Enchanted Path podcast. Join me next week for a bonus episode on the history, heritage, and lore of other remarkable Wiltshire sites, including Stonehenge and the origins of Silbury Hill. This episode was written and produced by me, Jessie Howe. You can find all resources and episode transcripts for the Enchanted Path podcast on my website, The Adventures of Jessie and the Grumpy Gnome, at jessieandgrumpygnome.com. Our podcast is streaming on platforms including Spotify, Anchor, and Apple Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by joining our Patreon, the Enchanted Path Podcast. Memberships start at just $1 and give you exclusive access to early releases, bonus episodes, artwork, music, custom merch, and monthly gift boxes. 
Thank you for listening. And until next time, happy adventures. Mm-hmm.